Hello, everybody, and welcome to a new episode in Leaders in Supply Chain. I am your host, Radu Palamario, and I'm delighted to have with us today Steve Merck, who is the President Transportation Solutions for TE Connectivity. As a leader of the transportation solution segment and one of the world's largest suppliers of connectivity and sensor solutions to the automotive and commercial vehicle marketplaces, TE's products are basically almost in every single car. And Stephen is responsible for all aspects of the division for sales development operations worldwide. He joined TE in 1989 and has had the leadership positions across general management, operations, engineering, marketing, supply chain, as well as new product launches. And he was appointed to his current role in August 2012 after servicing the division of TE automotive business as president. And prior to the company, he was also a flight test engineer a long time ago as well as a computer consultant for Rogers University. So Steve, great to have you. Thanks for joining us. Hi, Radu. Thank you. And really uh, looking forward to the conversation today. So maybe let's, I mean, curiosity, right? Uh, so uh, you, you were actually a flight test engineer a long, long time ago. Let's start on the personal side. How did you end up in, in, in TE, right? Any inflection points in your career and, and, and what brought you to where you are today? Hey, you know, I, I've been with T for a long time. I, I joined the company directly out of college and I had a aerospace engineering degree and a mechanical engineering degree. So prior to graduation, I, I spent some time as a flight test engineer, but I joined T because they had a really interesting rotation engineering program, which was the first two years of my career were essentially a series of three to six month assignments where I was able to work through manufacturing engineering, development engineering, product engineering, and really get a view of the company. And as I got a view of the company, I realized that I was just fascinated by the business side of it combined with the engineering side. So I went and the company sponsored me to get my master's degree in business and then came out and held a series of roles through product management and operations and sales and marketing and, and engineering, but always with a technical focus. We're, we're a very technically focused company and started my general management career very early in my career. So, so I, I became general manager of one of our divisions when I was about 32 years old. So I've been doing mostly general management and executive management for the majority of my career. Yeah. Wow. There, there you go. And I think specifically for the segment that you're leading, right, for the transportation solutions, the electric vehicle market is a huge boom and is going and experiencing a tremendous growth. So that's, that's the main topic that I wanted to chat with you today. So maybe let's start a little bit with uh, a bit of history. And I know that we were chatting offline, you were telling me about the different stages and where we are today. So maybe let's, let's discuss that for, for all the audience that will be listening to this. Walk us through where the EV market was and, and how it evolved and where it is today. You got it. And, and I'll, I'll put a big disclaimer out there, which is I'm a big EV fan. I've been driving electric vehicles for more than a decade. I'm a firm believer this is the future of mobility for sure. That being said, there were a lot of challenges to get from where we were to where we are today. And I view it through four stages. And the first stage was, was really a technological challenge, which is could we create electric vehicles that were financially compelling, economically made sense. And when battery technology was, was at the three to $400 per kilowatt hour range, there really was a very difficult economic equation to close and technology had to play a role. So it was a real accelerated development of battery technology, which really helped to drive battery, you know, 
productivity and, and cost down relatively quickly to the $150, $160 range. And once we got to that range, it, it, we got to a place where governments could start to step in and help to close the gap between the cost of ownership for an, an internal combustion vehicle and an electric vehicle. And so, you know, the first stage was technology. Let's get batteries less expensive. And we're still on that journey. Batteries continue to become less expensive. They continue to become more efficient. The weight to range ratios, the number of charging cycles, how quick it takes to charge a battery, that will all continue to evolve in the decades to come. But we've reached a point now where the technology is mature enough to drive scale. Government regulations is both a combination of carrots and sticks. So in some cases, consumers received incentives to help offset the additional cost of an electric vehicle in the beginning. And so people would get tax credits or financial payments directly from governments if they acquired an electric vehicle. But also OEMs faced meaningful penalties, particularly in Europe, if their emissions and the emissions of their broader fleet weren't brought under control. And so we have this regulatory environment that really helped to accelerate the implementation. But the third you know, big barrier was a lot of people had never driven an electric vehicle and they had preconceived notions as to what that experience would be. We are quickly moving past that. As people drive electric vehicles, they get an understanding of how simple it is to charge a vehicle, how quickly the vehicle is able to, to accelerate and perform. You know, you're not making a big performance compromise. And in fact, in most cases, electric vehicles will have performance characteristics that are superior to internal combustion engines. So it's an exciting vehicle to drive. There's no doubt about it. Over the long term, I think people are also going to realize that electric vehicles are inherently much simpler from a powertrain perspective than internal combustion engine vehicles. They'll require less maintenance. They're likely going to have longer lives. And that's what we're seeing from some of the early vehicles that are coming out is that we're seeing a really nice reliability profile on the powertrain. And so step one, we have to get technology. Step two, governments really helped to bridge the gap while we were in the no man's land of where electric vehicles are still a little too expensive. And then consumers came in. And now we're at that, that place where you see an inflection point in adoption. We're seeing things really take off. And step four is really going to be probably one of the bigger challenges in all of this, and that is building out a global supply chain that's able to support this level of growth. In the history of the automotive industry, we've never seen the industry go through this kind of transformation, both from a scale perspective and a pace perspective. And so it's an exciting time for sure, but it's also an uncertain time. There's a lot of innovation happening in the technology side. There's a lot of innovation happening commercially as, you know, companies think about new ways to engage. And there's a lot of innovation happening in OEM business models where companies are deciding whether they're mobility companies, whether they're electric vehicle companies, whether they're traditional manufacturers that happen to have an electric vehicle arm. And I think those four factors will really help to shape how this industry plays out over the next decade or so. Mm. It reminds me in some ways with the boom that we witnessed uh, maybe 10, 15 years ago with the mobile, with the smartphones. And and I actually have one or two friends. One was leading BlackBerry, and one uh, Donna Wharton. He was, she was, I think, with Motorola. And they were telling me the stories of you know being prepared, their supply chain being prepared for millions of these devices, and then having to ship tens of <laughs> tens yes. to hundreds of millions, right? So it, it it kind of just went through the roof. So I guess the question then, Steve, is how are you and how is T Connectivity preparing your supply chains for this? It, you know it. it... I'll take it one step back and, and just on the cell phone comparison, I think there is one 
meaningful difference, which is the rate and pace of evolution is, is similar. But if you think about the amount of capital required to build an automobile versus the amount of capital required to build a cell phone, the order, the, the challenge that, that, that the industry is going to face in scaling up is an order of magnitude more difficult than what we face in the cell phone industry. So it's, it's actually good that the world has that set of experiences that we can lean on. And from a TE perspective, we have the same set of experiences. We not only serve the automotive industry, but we also serve every connectivity market in the world. And we've seen this kind of drive to scale that's occurring. And I'd say even today, we see the same rate and pace of expansion happening in cloud and data centers. So we're, we're used to having to move at the pace of, of our customers. And for us, it's really important to anticipate what our customers' needs are going to be, and then make sure that we build both the capability and the capacity to do that. And so that looks quite different for different OEMs. For some startup OEMs, we're spending time helping them understand the low voltage portion of the vehicle, the non-EV, non-powertrain portion of the vehicle, helping them with their architectures to build out that broader vehicle, while we're also helping them to build out their powertrain technology. I think one of the advantages that we, we do have and one of, the, one of the benefits we have is our customers trust us enough to bring us early into the development process. And so I lived in China in 2009, 10, 11. And during that time, we were in the early stages of EV conversations. And I, I remember one of the Chinese OEMs was, was on the forefront and going in and having conversations about what their product roadmap was going to look like four or five years into the future. And then going and having conversations with some of the global OEMs that we, we usually talk to and realizing that they, they weren't quite at the same place. And so it gave us the opportunity to partner with these early players, helped us to understand some of the challenges that they're going to face architecturally, and then build out the application engineering expertise that's necessary to really help all of our customers. Now, that everything's changed since then, for sure. And I think Tesla was one of the big drivers of that change as they came in and gained traction it was a wake-up call for, for the broader industry. And what we've seen is that the industry is awake and moving very quickly. And so for us, we have to make sure that from the raw material perspective, all the way through to our logistics and, and supply chain capabilities, we're prepared to serve our customers globally, but also to be able to serve them locally. And that, that's a big challenge as we see some of the global OEMs building out their EV infrastructures on a global basis. They want to make sure that we're close enough to be able to deal with so many of the disruptions that are happening in the space. And, and for us, it's really two dimensions. We have to build the capability for these new products and then make sure that we're investing in the capacity along with it. And we have to bring our suppliers along with us, which means there's a meaningful investment in supplier development to, to make sure we're building out these capabilities globally. Mm. No, exactly to your point. And uh, I mean, I guess risk and risk mitigation has come very high on the agenda, given all that has happened in the last 24 months. And it, for some reason, it just continues to happen. So it's, it's chaos is the new norm uh, type of a scenario. So uh, double clicking a little bit, Steve, on, on this point of risk mitigation and how are you even managing to deal with all this complexity and again i don't think there's a straightforward or easy answer but are there certain principles or certain things that you just try to keep in mind in order for you to be able to expand in so many and, and to manage this global i mean this global complexity with all your clients in different markets where you have different issues affecting each markets and still you need to deliver 
Yeah, yeah, I, I would say we'll, we'll, I'll take it all the way back to the product development stage. In, in the early stages, when OEMs are starting to scale, they they don't really have the volume to build out custom solutions. And so, what we have to do is build a portfolio of market solutions that are building blocks that that folks can use in the early stage of their vehicle concept and development, and then be prepared to work with them. To, to create more customized solutions as they scale and, and, and drive to volume. And by having that portfolio of, of market-based uh, solutions, it allows us to be able to build out that application engineering and that manufacturing capability and capacity next to our customers. And for us, it's a, it, that's a really important concept for us, which is we're not chasing the lowest cost labor that we have anywhere in the world. Our goal is to be as close to our customers as we possibly can. And when when I say close to our customers, I mean everything from the initial conversation with a blank sheet of paper as they're designing their product, wherever they are in the world, we're going to have a TE person that is resident in, in that location, that speaks that language, is on the same time zone, is culturally aligned with the people that are doing the design work in that location. And we'll follow through with that all the way through to the manufacturing process where the vast majority of our products are manufactured in country or in locations very close to where they're consumed. And as we think about some of the disruptions that have occurred, whether they're geopolitical disruptions, whether they're you know, pandemic-related disruptions, or whether they're environmental disruptions, having a shorter supply chain that is closer to our customers eliminates a lot of the complexity if we had a single or or kind of bimodal operations footprint and then just tried to serve it from a single location in the world and i think that's a that's an advantage of scale you know being being the largest player in, in the industry it does give us the opportunity to make those investments at scale close to our customers and that's a fundamental principle which is the closer we can be to our customers and the more we can anticipate their needs, the better we can serve them. And the farther away we are and, and the less ability we have to anticipate, it's certainly harder to react when, when unforeseen things occur. Absolutely. Now, you, you mentioned China. There's been a huge growth and in investment from the government. There's been quite a few Chinese OEMs that came into the market. I guess the, the question, and this came from a few sources when, when I told them that we're going to be talking about EVs, and the EV market. Would you say that you would make a good focus in terms of trying and working with the evolving Chinese OEMs? Would you say that the growth is you know, across the board, not necessarily for one particular market in, you know, whether it's Chinese or whether it's US or whether it's European, or how do you look at this? Also linking it a little bit to what you just said that you want to be close to your, to your clients. Yeah, you, you know, what's interesting is there's two dimensions of growth that we deal with. One is absolute volume growth and how many vehicles are being built and how do you prepare for that? And one is growth and capability of our customers. And you know, historically, Europe has been a major driver of innovation in the automotive industry. And we continue to see that in the EV space. But what I will say is that the Chinese OEMs have gone from technology followers to folks who are making meaningful investments in building out their own innovation and their own technology portfolio. And I think that's one of the bigger changes that we've seen is, you know, rewind the clock 10, 15 years ago, Chinese OEMs were heavily dependent upon imported technology and imported innovation. And what we see now is a, a real acceleration of that innovation cycle. So it's, you know, it's always difficult to predict who the winners and losers are going to be in markets. And, and our strategy is to, to play with everyone 
and make sure that we're able to support folks as they scale. So I can't, I'm not smart enough to predict who, who is going to win the battle at the OEM level. But when I talk about markets, China's fully invested and there's a great deal of government support in driving this. Europe has strong regulatory support that's really been driving you know, the innovation, the rate and pace. North American market is a little bit behind in, in some of what I'll call the, the regulatory structure to drive EV growth and the incentives and disincentives around the transition from internal combustion. But it does feel as though momentum is growing. And given how quickly technology is happening, I think the gap will close much faster than anybody anticipates. So it feels as though all three of the major you know, geographic areas, whether you're talking about Asia, Europe, or the Americas, all three of them are growing rapidly towards EV. Mm. And in each case, we have to make sure that we're positioned next to them to go. And, and the good news is that some of the fundamental technology around battery connectivity, charging, inlets, how you control battery disconnect and power distribution within the vehicle. There's a lot of global scale to those solutions. We, we create custom solutions at the local level, but the industry itself is has the building blocks that are really going to allow for continued industrialization. And I would say continued improvement on cost competitiveness towards the internal combustion engine. And that's not specific to any one region in, mm. in the world. That's for sure. Mm-mm. I need to ask you this because uh, even today I was talking to <laughs> I was talking to a friend of mine and he his car got uh, hit in the back and he got into an accident and I asked him so how's your car how how easy is it to fix it and then he's like it's okay I can't drive it they told me they have no clue when they can fix it because of <laughs> spare parts and, and supporting <laughs> issues. So anyway, spare parts is one, but I mean, much uh, the underlying sense seems to be the semiconductor shortages, right? So I need to ask you, Steve, about, about that one because it's on everybody's minds. And you're not a semiconductor company, right? But ultimately, because you're part of the ecosystem and because you're a key part, right? Are there certain things, I have no clue if there are, but I have to ask you, that, that you can also do in terms of helping some of your clients mitigate or better run through these times of semiconductor shortages, even if you're, of course, not a semiconductor company yourself? Yeah, you know, what, what we found that I think probably everybody supplying the auto industry has found is that it's gone from a, an environment where you had a very high level of visibility. You know, the, the, the industry was built around just-in-time inventory management. And that required that we all had a pretty good sense of what production schedules are going to be ahead of time. And we were able to downstream run our factories, you know, in a way that that supported those production schedules. That's gone out the window. Um, <laughs> I will tell you this time last year was pure chaos where on a, on a Monday, you would get a production schedule from, you know, either a, a OEM or a tier one. And on Tuesday, they would be changing that schedule because they didn't get the semiconductors that they needed to run those particular vehicles, or they made changes around what their priorities were, and they they shifted those semiconductors from one vehicle to another, either because of customer demand issues or relative profitability issues as they were trying to manage through a really difficult time. So what we found was we went from you know, a, a space where it was fairly linear and easy to predict to one where it was, we were driving in the fog and it was, it was pure chaos. And you didn't know on Tuesday what the demand was going to be on Wednesday. And so that really led to, uh, to the need to be really agile and think about our supply chains, our internal processes to make sure that, that we're much more adaptable 
to those changes as we go. And that's required a lot of investment. It's required a lot of skill building within our teams. And I, and I, I always say, you know, in times like these, our teams get, you know, three or four years worth of development in one year mm-hmm. because the, the pressure is so intense. And fundamentally, if one part is missing, they, they have a great deal of difficulty building a vehicle. And so we always want to make sure that we're not that part and that we're able to stay ahead of the curve, but it's put a lot of pressure on our suppliers. And, and what I would say is the part of the supply chain that really struggled is the raw material part of the supply chain, where we saw meaningful disruptions in, in the resin industry caused by a whole series of natural disasters and, and demand issues and meaningful disruptions in the specialty metal industry. And you know when you see things like floods in Germany, you tend to, to not really think about how much of an impact that's going to have on, on specific in, industries. But we saw that the raw material supply chains were not as robust as they need to be to deal with the kind of disruptions that we're seeing. And it's, it's changed the way we think about certainty of supply and how important it is for us to partner and build different kinds of relationships with our suppliers that are a little longer term and have a little bit more shared risk between ourselves and, and those players. And the same thing is happening with our customers as people rethink what their inventory strategies need to be, but also rethink the way we structure our relationships with each other to give us the freedom and flexibility to make some moves. And, you know, I I will tell you, it's very difficult to get a material change done in the automotive industry. Requires a great deal of engineering engagement. What we have found is really productive ways to work with our partners when we're in a constrained environment to take some of those processes that would normally take nine to 12 months and get them done safely, effectively, and with certainty in you know, days. And that's really helped to add some flexibility. And we're certainly hopeful that level of flexibility continues once we get past this crisis period that, that we're in, for sure. You spoke a number of times and capability production scaling is key. Perhaps even, even more so is the skill and the human element that needs to operate this factories, these supply chains, the engineering teams. Are there certain ways in in which, again, at the principal level, Steve, in which you ensure or perhaps maximize (laughs) your chances of keeping up with developing the right skills and talent and attracting the right people to to sustain the growth? Yeah, I I think it starts with our purpose. You know, we serve a broad range of industries, but there's a lot of things that are in common. And, And in every case, we're we're focused on creating a safe, sustainable, productive, and connected future. And so the work that we do is important. And so when people think about why am I doing this, you know, what, what, what impact will it have on the world? Our products have a meaningful impact on the world. And I think that's, that's step one is people need to feel a sense of purpose and a sense of understanding that the work they do, the products they're creating and inventing or manufacturing, the safety that they're building into our products is absolutely essential. And it's meaningful. And so step one is making sure that purpose is real, that people understand it, that they feel it, and, and that it impacts them. The second two, second thing is making sure we have a culture that in, encourages people to grow, where we have a set of values where we value innovation, we value integrity, we value teamwork, and we really value accountability. And so if you create a space where people believe in what they're doing, they're proud of the way that they're doing it, and they're given the opportunity to grow skills and, and, and continue to develop. We find that it's, it's easy to drive engagement when we have those factors. And, it's, and, and when people are engaged, you know, 
pretty amazing things happen. So we've been fortunate to be able to, to build a team that we're incredibly proud of, but given the growth that's in front of us, we have to add thousands of engineers to that team in the coming years. Good news is we're, we're finding that as we, as we recruit, as we, as we bring folks in, they're, they're finding it to be an environment where they're able to thrive and grow and, and make meaningful contributions. So that's got to be our primary focus at all times, because the ideas that, that change the world, they come from the teams that we build, no doubt about it. That's a fact. Now, looking, looking back on your career, and I like to ask this question, what would you say that were one or two principles that you followed or learned along the way that helped you most? You know, I, I would say be bold and stay close to your customers. You know, some of the things that really shaped me were the times that I spent out of my home market. So I lived in Asia for a while. I lived in Europe for a while. And that really gave me the ability to value a diverse set of inputs and perspectives and, and realize how important it is to have an open mind about ideas and concepts that might be different than those that, that are comfortable to you. And, and so if you have that opportunity to grow, whether it's a geographic opportunity or whether it's an opportunity in a different function or, or even in a different industry, I, I think being bold and challenging yourself to get into those uncomfortable spaces really provides a, a tremendous growth opportunity. And secondly, I, I, I think whatever industry you're in, if you drift too far from the customer, I, I think you, you lose your North Star. You, you have to remain customer focused as an individual in order to be customer focused as a leader in a company. And so, so I, I think those are the two pieces of advice I would say is never forget the customer and, and don't be afraid to, to challenge yourself to do something that makes you quite uncomfortable. Hmm. Super. Well, Steve, thanks a lot for the time. Great sharing and some, some really good case studies and examples about what's going on around the EV market. Good luck with the boom. <laughs> we <Thank> all you. <laughs> Good luck with the growth and navigating the pain of growth uh, as always. And yeah, we all want more and I think I for sure want more electric vehicles on the road so that we can we can achieve all sustainability targets faster as well. So um, help us help us get there. All right. Thank you so much. Thanks for the opportunity for the conversation. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you liked what you heard, be sure to go to www.elcodglobal.com and click the podcast button for all the show notes of the interview. Also, subscribe to our mailing list to get our latest updates first. If you're listening through a streaming platform like iTunes, Spotify or Stitcher, we would appreciate a kind review. Five star works best to keep us going and our production team happy. And of course, share it with your friends. I'm most active on LinkedIn, so do feel free to follow me. And if you have any suggestions on what, what to do and who to invite next, don't hesitate to drop me a note. And if you're looking to hire top executives in supply chain or transform your business, of course, contact us as well to find out how we can help.